Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Yes, welcome. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. Okay, good guest this week. Actually, this week and next Mark Evanier is with me. Now, a lot of you know Mark as a blogger. He has one of the top blogs on the entire internet called News From M.E., News From Me. And he is also, let's see, an accomplished comic book writer, sitcom writer. He worked on Welcome Back, Cotter. He is a terrific cartoonist. He is the producer-director of the Garfield cartoon series. He wrote a book on Jack Kirby, the guy who pretty much invented most of the Marvel Universe. And he has produced TV variety shows. Boy, this guy is busy. Mark Evanier, a two-parter because... I want to get into all of that. And in the first part, we're really going to concentrate on the comic book world and especially Jack Kirby. Now, Jack Kirby is a guy who worked for DC Comics. He worked for Marvel Comics. And he created such characters as Captain America, Thor, the Fantastic Four, X-Men, the Avengers, Black Panther, Unbelievable. I mean, this guy is pretty much the Babe Ruth of graphic comics, and yet a lot of people don't know much about him. Well, we're going to learn about him and that whole world of Marvel DC Comics in part one, my interview with Mark Evanier, right here on Hollywood and the Vine. You've been involved in many pursuits. But it seems to me your first love is cartooning and comic books. Uh, to a certain extent. Most of the pursuits were covered by Stu Mundell in Ch- Chopper 2 overhead. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was about six. And I wasn't sure why I wanted to be a writer of. I wanted to write comic books. I wanted to write cartoons. I wanted to write live-action TV shows. I wanted to write books. Um, TV shows took a big leap when I went to see the Dick Van Dyke show being filmed at age 12 or so. And so I just They give you a carton of Kent cigarettes? No, no, no. I was actually, you know, you had to be 15 to go to a a, a filming, but my family and I ran into Maury Amsterdam in the airport and he gave us, (laughs) he gave us a business, he gave us his business card. he, He gave me his business card and said, here, uh, call this number. He put a number on the back of it. And he said, call this lady. I think her name was actually Marge, the same name as 
you know, the, the writer's secretary there and come to a filming and I'll introduce you to Mary and Dick and wow. Rose and everybody wow. like that. So we called up, we made an appointment, we went there and it was an episode Maury Amsterdam was not in. <laughs> uh, but I did get to meet Dick very briefly right. and I got to see Mary Tyler Moore in person. I have never to this day seen anything that looked as good as Mary Tyler Moore. And it wasn't just the, the first time I'd ever seen her in person. It was the first time I'd seen her in color. And um, Persky and Denoff, I figured out who they were. They weren't introduced, but I figured out Writing two guys, two mm-hmm. guys in sweaters were there with notebooks and people were coming up to them and asking them about a line or something like that. And, and even at that age, I knew I was never going to be a performer nor have I ever had any desire to be one. But I looked at those guys and I said, I think I could do what they did, what they're doing. I think I could be part of it. They seemed important there and people liked them. And I thought, okay, this is my chance. That's a job where you get to be near people who look like Mary. Uh And uh, you get to marry uh, Laura Petrie. That's one of the reasons why I became a writer. That's right. You know, I don't know if I told you this story ever, but um, I met Mary Tyler Moore once and I, Literally, and I swear this is true, I stepped on her foot, which, if you remember, that's how Rob met Laura. That's true. In the, in yeah. the, in the, in the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I felt terrible about it, and I apologized incessantly, um, and she was kind of icy to me. <laughs> uh, well, I worked with her. David Isaacs and I created a show for her in 1985, yeah. and she specifically said, I do not want Mark Evanier in the audience. I, that would do it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, she remembered. Well, you know, when she did the variety show before that, right? I got this call one time. Um, they, my agent calls me and he says, Arnie Rosen is, is going to be doing the new Mary Tyler Moore variety show. He wants you to come in and talk about writing for it. And I had worked with Arnie Rosen and I didn't like Arnie Rosen. And I couldn't, I thought, why does Arnie Rosen want me? He doesn't like me. And I didn't like him. So I didn't go in. And I found out later it was Arnie Kogan. It was <laughs> a very was different Arnie, person. Yeah, 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 a totally different person. And my agent had just confused the names. <laughs> um, so I never went in. But I think I was fortunate I was not on that show. So Yes, yeah, that was a very difficult show. That's a, an interesting show if you can find any uh, copies of it on YouTube. I mean, among the supporting players were David Letterman. Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, yeah. Swoosie Kurtz. Yeah, yeah everybody was good on that show except Mary, yeah. I think. Well, <laughs> same thing on our show. Uh, <laughs> anyway. You, you had John Aston, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We, had, yeah. we had a great cast. We had John Aston. We had Katie Segal. We gave Katie Segal her first job. Uh, yeah, no, if we would have had Christine Ebersol starring in the show, uh, it would have gone eight years. But it wouldn't we have, move on. It wouldn't have gotten on probably with no, Christine Ebersol. No, that's absolutely true. <laughs> All right, so anyway, so I just wanted to be a writer, and I figured I'll just take whatever avenues are open to me. And comic books, which were a passion of mine for years, were the easiest entry thing for me. And I was invited, I was asked by editors to submit scripts to them. And then I met this man named Jack Kirby, who uh, is a legend. Uh, yeah, a, a a genuine, bona fide, creative genius. Describe Jack Kirby for people who don't know who well, he is. Well, Jack Kirby was the most important creator of comic books, probably, or certainly of adventure-type comic books. And he 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 and his partner, Joe Simon created Captain America in the early 40s. Okay. Uh, they created a lot of very successful comics. They were the, they were the preeminent team, creative team. 
Siegel and Schuster, you know, created Superman, but that was their one real right. shot. Simon and Kirby were always creating new comics. They invented romance comics. Uh, and then they broke up in the 50s, and Jack wound up at Marvel Comics, where he and Stan Lee started the Fantastic Four and the Thor and the X-Men and, and the Avengers and all these things which are, are now billion-dollar properties. Mm-hmm. And people always say to me, Jack passed away in the early 90s. They said, well, how would, what would he have thought of all this? And I said, he would have said, I told you so. He would have said it lovingly and sweetly without any ego. Mm-hmm. But he would have said, of course, yes. And one of the reasons he never got his due financially was because the people he was working for had no vision of what this stuff could be worth. He did. He was a, he was a guy who talked strangely out of sync with the world sometimes. He was out of sync with, with the present because he was always in the future. And he, he couldn't drive a car because he would drive off the road. His mind would wander and he couldn't. <laughs> but he would sit down at the drawing table every day with a pile of blank paper and a pencil and he, it was a ratty little... I had a better drawing board than Jack Kirby at home. <laughs> And he would create these visions and things, and everything he did, other writers later have had um, inspiration to create, to build upon. Every, everything he did was a foundation for something. So the, the Black Panther was kind of a throwaway character that he, he started, and now it's the biggest, hottest movie in the world. And the X-Men and all these things and, and minor villains. He had a villain in when he was working for DC Comics named Darkseid, who will probably be the villain in almost every DC Comics movie of the foreseeable future, or would be part of it. He was such a great villain. And a lot of people think that Darth Vader in the Star Wars series was a ripoff of Darkseid. Uh, a lot of similarities there. But the point was that he just kept coming up with ideas and new ideas, and he was a sweet, wonderful man. But he had a New York accent, and he talked a little like Jimmy Cagney in a bad movie, and his <laughs> mind would wander. He would just start talking to you about one thing, and then he'd be talking about something else, and he'd talk about something else, and you'd look at him and go, yeah, sure, Jack, with no idea what he was talking about. And then weeks, months later, you'd go, oh, I get it. He was talking about, he was continuing another conversation, and he jumped. He made weird associations in his life. Judd Hirsch does that too. Really? Yeah. Okay. Judd well, Hirsch does can, that too. Can, can he Great draw? Great guy. Can he yeah. draw? <laughs> Great guy. Remember once uh, being on the Paramount lot with uh, Glenn and Les Charles, and uh, we came upon Judd, and they had worked with him on Taxi. And so we're walking across the lot with him, and he's talking about this, and I have no idea because he's just jumping from topic to topic. And when we finally separate, I said, um, what was he talking about? And they said to me, uh, we thought you knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, Jack was like that, but, but it was always – it was worth the time to figure out what he was saying because it was really sometimes just brilliant. And – he never got the financial rewards in his lifetime because he's working for these people who thought, you know, oh, the Black Panther, that's not worth much. We, we're not going to pay him much for that. That's not a, a value. Uh, the people who sold, the guy who he worked for at Marvel sold the company, uh, Jack used to say, for about the price that Ant-Man was worth. He sold Spider-Man, the Hulk, the X-Men, Captain wow. America. Wow. Uh, for this, you know, it was that, it was like, it was like uh, uh, 
when Colonel Sanders sold his empire for $2 million and thought that was what KFC, and that was a lot of money right? in, in Austin Powers context. <laughs> uh, and so Jack just was working for people who didn't understand what he was giving them. And what he gave me was not much money. I didn't, I didn't work for him for money. I worked for him for just that glow of being around a genius. And what honest, did you do you know, for him? You wrote? I, did, I wrote some things which he didn't need. It was like busy. Oh, I want to give Mark a chance here. You, write, you can write this thing. You can write this. And he absolutely didn't need me. He could have written something better. By, right. In the time it took him to read what I wrote and figure out how to fix it, he could have easily written something better. But I did odd jobs. I actually was able, I drew one thing better than Jack. I drew Superman's emblem better than he did. So I would occasionally draw Superman's emblem when he was drawing a Superman wow. comic. I'd wow. draw it in. Or I'd fix a little drawing mistake. He, he once drew an issue of a comic the wrong size. Um, we did um, the comic book original art. This is the image area on the original art was 10 by 15, 10 inches by 15. Okay. But we were doing a special couple books. There were magazines that were 11 by 17. And then he drew an issue of Jimmy Olsen, which I was working on with him, 11 by 17 accidentally. There's two piles of paper. Because he was absent-minded. That. That's like, like the way he couldn't drive a car. He couldn't figure out how to use a ruler or he couldn't figure <laughs> out how to... To uh, his wife had to order for him in restaurants. He could never decide what to, <laughs> what, to what to order in the restaurants. Um, we'd, we'd go to an Italian restaurant. He'd say, "I want a hamburger," and they'd say, "We don't have hamburgers." Oh, I want a hamburger, <laughs> and his wife would go, "No, no, give him this instead. Give him a meatball sandwich." How, uh, how yeah. long would it take him to draw? A comic book. Well, he did them in two days if he had to. Wow. Uh, for emergencies. He did once did an issue of Captain America. He, he once did an issue of Captain America in two days where the, he was filling in. Another person was doing the book. And at the end of one issue, Captain America ap- apparently died. Because in comic books, every hero has to die every couple of months. And then, oh, my God, next issue of his comic, he comes back. So Jack, he called up Jack and said, you got to do a fill-in Captain America on here. And he said, okay, what's the continuity I've got to pick up? He said, well, Captain America's dead. And he said, <laughs> well, okay, so you want me to bring him back? No, you got to keep him dead till the next issue, which is already half drawn. So, so he had to do 20 pages of Captain America over the weekend with Captain America dead. Wow. And he did it. <laughs> His background, uh, he yeah. must have been a fine artist because... His anatomy, the characters, you know, the anatomy was really well done. Well, the anatomy was really weird. It was, it, it was not, I mean, you could look at his uh, figure, Jack Drew, and go, what's that muscle? And you, and you know, <laughs> he, he, just, he made up his own anatomy. He made up his own mythology. He made up his own uh, language. He, made up, he created visual language and v- verbal language. And uh, there are people who get nuts because he drew kind of square fingertips. Well, he liked square fingertips. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, ordinarily when he was working at a comfortable pace, he would do about two to three pages a day. But the thing that was impressive about Jack was not just how fast he was, but how hard he worked. There was a day in my life, when people always say to me, what did you learn from this guy? And that's... That's, we could build 12-year podcasts with that. But one of the key things was I looked at him one day and I said to myself, Mark, you're never going to have that kind of native brilliance. To, you, you, you're never going to be as creative as this man. You're certainly never going to draw as well as he did. I kind of gave up drawing a lot when I worked for Jack. <laughs> like, what's the point? It's right. like you know, following around Tiger Woods with your putter. Right. Uh, 
But I thought it might be possible to work that hard. It might be possible to commit to every job, so to stay up all night if you have to, to do it over and over until you get the way you want it. I could do that. And, I, and, and so I, I learned a lot of work habits from my work ethics. And there were times when now when I, I'm writing something and I'm tired and I go, well, this is good enough. And I think, no, Jack would have erased this. If this was a combo page, Jack would have erased it and done it over. Wow. Even though what he had done the first was perfectly fine. But he had to always give 110% on everything, even when he knew the work would be mauled by others down the assembly line, even when he knew that he'd be swindled on the money. Even, he, you know, he just, <laughs> even, though he, even though he knew that the printing was terrible. He, he knew the printing and the comics he was doing was terrible. And you know was, these were these were twelve cent and fifteen cent comic right. books. I, when I was we're talking the sixties, and I was working for him in nineteen seventy. Okay, and, and it, the comics were fifteen cents at that point, and they were printed on the the worst paper stock back then. There was never a case of the public any publisher comic book publisher ever saying. Oh no, we can't do that to the comics. We've got to do a better job on printing. Yeah, if anybody like gray came, paper. If, if anybody yeah. came to them and said, "We've got a cheaper paper. We've got a cheaper kind of printing plate," they went, "Fine, we'll take it." So, Jack would put all this intricate detail and all this extra energy, way more than anybody else who was being paid the same rates was doing. And if you said to him, "Jack, why are you putting so much into this?" He'd say, "Well, because someday this stuff's going to be reprinted on good paper." And nobody thought that at the time. But him. <laughs> and, of course, right now you go to a comic book shop and you can buy about 75% of his life's work printed in hardcover, deluxe paper, embossed covers and things like that. He knew that was going to happen to the work. He was that pressured. The, 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 the amazing... Wish you would have warned us thing. about Trump. Oh, he did. He <laughs> did. There, if you, you go back now, people are looking at old Kirby comics and going, hey, there's Trump. He did a thing in... Um, book I did uh, with him called The Forever People, uh, he had a character named Glorious Godfrey, who was a combination of Arthur Godfrey and Billy Graham. Okay. Uh, Jack was a very liberal Democrat. Um, I don't think he ever voted Republican in his life. And he, 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 he thought that Billy Graham, this is 1970, was the most dangerous man on the, on the planet because Billy Graham was just praying for the Earth's destruction and you know, the rebirth and all that stuff and, and getting people psyched up to believe that the world was going to end next Tuesday. And so he he took the folksy charm of Arthur Godfrey and embedded it in Billy Graham. If Billy Graham had been able to communicate as well as Arthur Godfrey, okay, uh, it's a little bit like his version of A Face in the Crowd mm-hmm. to some extent. Great movie, yeah. But you can read... Andy go, Griffith. Go yeah. back and read those and you, you find... You can find analogies to Mr. Trump. Um, not to, not, you know, I mean, they're a little strained at some point, but you still have somebody who's... The reached, hair has got to be better. Yeah, right? yeah. The hair's well, got to be better. Well, he had Arthur Godfrey's hair, yeah, the character, okay. <laughs> but, which was not that different. But he, it was, the story was essentially about someone appealing to someone's inner fears and base instincts and, and appealing to the worst of people's, you know, Terror, terror uh-huh. of of the unknown, of to, to their tribalism, and it just—I mean, it, it, the analogy only goes so far. It, it, there's a lot of stuff in Glorious Godfrey that has no connection to Donald Trump or, or any any demagogue that we've had in, in in any political party. But 
the thing was that Jack wasn't writing stories about robbing the bank. He wasn't writing stories about bank robbers, and he wasn't writing stories about we have to, you know, someone stealing the Klopman diamond. He wasn't doing that kind of thing. He was writing stories about human interaction and people and the types. You, he, he wrote a lot of stories about abuse of power. That was a constant theme. And this villain of his that he had called Darkseid that I mentioned had a lot of Richard Nixon in him. Mm. Um, Jack would take... The thing, the brilliance he had was he would take something in the news that interested him and he would fashion a whole story around it and you couldn't really figure out easily what he was talking about. He did a famous story in the Fantastic Four where uh, this character named Galactus is coming in to basically eat Earth. He's a, a guy who feasts on planets. And uh, there's this big war that goes on about, and the Fantastic Four managed to save the Earth from, from Galactus. And I read the story, and it was a very powerful story. And it, it, was, it was a story driven by Jack. He worked with Stan Lee on a lot of these Marvel comics. And there's somewhere you can tell Jack was the dominant creative force, since, which is not to say Stan did not make a contribution. But, you know, as you know, you know, partnerships, teams are not always 50-50. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you probably with David, you know, no, a story that's... 80-20 me. Yeah, that's right. Time. Yes, all of course, yes. Yeah. He, he told me the yeah. same thing, yeah. but it was kind of reversed. Yeah. But, uh, and what Jack was writing about in his head, and I don't know if this was ever in Stan Lee's head, was corporate raiders who were going in and feasting on corporations and leaving them as... as which was he was terrified was going to happen because Marvel was up for sale. At the time, and he was very frightened. And it did happen. Yeah, it did. It did yeah. happen. And that, and the guy who bought it was famous for doing that, for 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 buying a company. It's uh, the guy who bought Marvel was the guy who bought Saturday Evening Post and destroyed it. Yeah, uh, kind and, of a Gordon Gecko guy. Yeah, yeah. and and so uh, Jack was. So if you really got into it, you'd understand the subtext of that Fantastic Four sequence was partially, not completely, because Jack never did stories about one thing. Partially about the uh, this thing that was happening, where you had a wonderful company and everybody's life depended on it. They everybody had made their paychecks from it, and somebody would come in, strip it of its asset, leave it a, a hollow, you know, framework, and move on. Which is what Galactus was going to do with Earth, except the Fantastic Four appealed to his herald, who was a throwaway character of Jack's called the Silver Surfer. Okay. That he just Remember stuck that, okay. in the story. He said, oh, Galactus needs a herald. We'll put the Silver Surfer. And that's how he created. He would just add a character. He, they come up out of nowhere. There was one time I was working with him, and DC Comics asked him to come up with a, uh, uh, a new comic about monsters and, and, and evil, you know, ghosting type thing, something macabre. Because they, at that moment, thought that was the new trend in comics. It, it really wasn't, but. You know, okay. DC was a very dysfunctional company at the time. So we went to dinner. Jack, his wife, my partner, myself, Jack's kids. We all drove to a Howard Johnson's right near the house. Jack lived out in Thousand Oaks. And I remember ordering a hot turkey sandwich. I don't know why I remember that. And Jack is sitting there quietly. He let his wife order for him. And he's just sitting there. Conversations going around him. And about the time they brought our entrees and we were going to stop talking and eat, Jack went... Okay, here's the comic. And he had figured out the entire demon storyline, the character called the demon. He'd figured it out in 20 minutes. And it, it sounded like something that somebody else had worked on for six months. 
<laughs> and he went home from that dinner and drew the first portrait of the demon and started jotting down notes. He had it all in his head, and every single thing that appeared in that comic, and it was a very good comic, was was fabulous. You know, was, was what was created while they were making my hot turkey sandwich. Wow. Uh, yeah, Great he was. Story. He was like that. Yeah. Great story. So, so you you know, I I didn't make any money working for Jack really, but I just had the the experience of being. I've been fortunate to be around a lot of people who I admired and who were just. I worked with Stan Freeberg, as you know a lot, mm-hmm. and I worked with. I got to work with a, a, the most brilliant actor I think who's ever lived, a man named Dawes Butler. Right. Who who did uh, voices? We're going to talk yeah. about cartoon voices. Uh, because I know there's a lot of people who want to get into that business. But first, I, I want to go chronologically yeah. and uh, turn to TV writing, because you became a sitcom writer. Yeah. Uh, you were on Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah. At the time, my partner and I were trying to break in. We couldn't even get in to pitch stories to Welcome Back, Cotter. Well, you did okay. Yeah, you we did do. Fine. Yeah, we, we did we, okay. As we sit here surrounded by your, your, your Emmys and your credits, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling sorry for you. Uh, How'd you make that change? I was writing comic books, and I was starting to write a little bit for some stand-up comedians I knew. I had this weird idea... Which which in, made a little sense. I never really planned career much, but I had this idea that I was writing comic books, and I was I could segue from writing comic books to writing TV cartoons. I was writing the Scooby Doo comic book, and I thought, well, maybe I can send some Scooby Doo comic books to the guy story editing the show and say, why don't you you know hire me to write the TV show? I've already here's an example of how I can write Scooby Doo, and it turns out that they just took the storylines and did them without me, uh, but. Uh, it's never happened before. Anyway, That's a very unique story. But I went the other way around. I went from uh, comic books to live action, then to animation, which is which nobody had done at the time, to my knowledge. Well, yeah, I take it back. Uh, Alan Burns had right. kind of done that. Who but, created the uh, Mary Tyler Moore show? Yeah, yeah. He wrote uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right. And, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, there was, I think Lloyd Turner also had done that, but right. not, not a lot of And he ended up doing and, the Jeffersons and, and hired me and David, and our now, first And now job. I'm thinking of other people. Jerry Belson did that. And yeah, Dale, Jerry Belson worked. He, you know, Jerry Belson is this great comedy writer, used to write with uh, Gary Marshall, and he started by writing Chili Willy cartoons. That's right, yeah. 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 I, when I worked for Western Publishing, which published the Gold Key comics of Hanna-Barbera and, and Disney and Warner Brothers, they were started referring to me as the new Jerry Belson. Which, uh-huh. And I, when I met Jerry Belson, I told him that, and he said, I'm the new Jerry Belson. <laughs> you can't be the new Jerry Belson. Tell you uh, one quick yeah. Jerry Belson story, because yeah. we worked together on Cheers, and when my son Matt was born, he sent a gift along with a note that's in Matt's baby book, and it said, Dear Matthew... Always remember I was funnier than your father. <laughs> you know what? He's right, too. <laughs> he was a funny man, yeah. Anyway, so I was writing comic books and such, and I was running the uh, comic book department for the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate. I was running Tarzan, Tarzan. Korak. Mm-hmm. And I met this guy named Dennis Palumbo, who was a Pittsburgh-born Pittsburgh. He's from Pittsburgh. I don't even know where Dennis was born, but he was from Pittsburgh. He had been in the ad business there. He'd come out here to try to get into, into TV writing. And he had found, and you know this well, that at that moment, if you wanted to write sitcoms, you had to come in twos. You needed a partner. 
nobody, I don't think anybody broke in who as a solo there except maybe Treva Silverman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, A future guest, by the way. Good. Yeah. She's yeah. a brilliant, funny person. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, I, every, I, I called her Trina. The last time I saw her, I have a friend named Trina Robbins, a comic book writer, and I called Treva Trina. And I'm still living that down. I, just, I got my, I got my, my women. My you know, it's interesting because she did write me a note saying, I'm happy to do the podcast unless Mark Evanier. Yeah, is so, I mean, you just, you know, you leave a trail just, wherever you go. And so does a snail. <laughs> uh, but the uh, uh, Dennis needed a partner. He, he realized that. And what had happened, oddly enough, was that Dennis knew a little bit about me from the comic book world. And I had written a fan letter to him. He wrote a book called The World's Greatest TV Trivia Test. It was a paperback book that came out. It was a, it was a, a book of TV trivia, but it was a funny book of TV trivia. And on a whim, and I almost never did this, I just wrote a letter to the, to the author and care of the publisher and said, hey, I just thought, wanted to tell you that was one of the funniest books I've ever read and, and such. And so he had my phone number. Or had my address at least, whatever. And I get this call one day, and he says, "Hey, I'm trying to write TV. You want to get together for lunch and talk about stuff?" And I said, "Okay." And we hit it off. And I found he was a very bright, smart guy. And as writers, we were probably at that stage about evenly matched in terms of experience and ability. But he was way ahead of me in pitching and talking and <laughs> selling. I was really bad. I've never gotten good at it, but I was even worse then. And I'm now, but fortunately, Dennis was able to make some connections and get us a couple meetings. And we met a man named Herb Solo, who at the time, Herb Solo, people remember his name. He was the, uh, over the end credits on, on Star, the original Star Trek, Herb Solo, executive right. in charge of production. He was working for Hanna-Barbera, trying to sell live action shows. Hanna-Barbera wanted to get into live action more. They brought him in because he had credibility in that area. We pitched him an idea. And he loved it. And he said, you guys got any balls? And I said, you know, Dennis, let's check. <laughs> we can go to the men's room and check if you'd like. And he said, he, he called in front of us, he called up CBS and he made an appointment with the top guy. He says, I'm bringing in two beginners. I, I, I believe in these guys so much. They've got the, the best idea in the world. Now, what had happened actually was that he had asked us to come up with an idea for Jack Klugman. The odd couple had ended, and he knew the networks all wanted to have a new, the next Jack Klugman vehicle. He was, somebody was going to develop a Jack Klugman pilot somewhere. Right. So he said, come up with an idea for Jack Klugman, and we decided we would go in and not mention Jack Klugman. We would pitch this <laughs> idea and wait for the guys in the network to say, hey, you know who'd be perfect for this? And they would think that it was their, their, their idea, their, their idea okay. which it would be, I guess, in mm-hmm. that case. So then all of a sudden, having never been you know, in a TV studio, except as audience, really, before, although I, I was poaching a lot at NBC. I was always, you, you want to hear about me sneaking through the halls at NBC at some point. We are pitching to the, the head of vice president of comedy at CBS. And they liked the idea. It was, you know, you, you've had good pitches and bad pitches. Sure. We had a good pitch when it mattered. It really went very well. And they said to us, basically, we love this idea. 
Nobody said Klugman until Herb, Herb finally said, well, what about Klugman? I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> that, that part of the strategy didn't work. But they loved the idea. But they had already commissioned a pilot very similar, same arena. And they said, we don't want to have two shows in the same setting. Uh, we will option yours, which I think they did kind of like a charity case for us. They said, thought it would be, okay. you know. Still money. They optioned it's real us. money. They optioned it from us. And they said, if the other pilot falls through, we'll reactivate yours. In the meantime, come up with something else for us. Um, so the other pilot was Alice. Oh. Which was only on for like 900 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so, it's off now. Go back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I mean, if, our show was basically um, Alice, if you had made Vic Tabak the star of it. Okay. You know? so, Diner kind yeah, of deal. Yeah. It was a, yeah. It was, yeah. So, uh, but we had, we had the other supporting characters worked out. And we had, we haven't had this, we haven't had the show all cast with people who we knew were available. That was, Herb thought, <laughs> Here a star, you know, we, he, we'd tell him some people we had my, oh, now he's gettable and the networks like him and he's gettable. So we were walking in with, you know, we could put like five of the people they liked in, into this sitcom. Uh, so we all of a sudden got kind of hot in the, in this, for young guys who hadn't had anything produced. Right. And we started being recommended for things and Herb sent us to some agents and, uh, but because the show, uh, if they had picked it up, we were obviously not qualified to be, you know, producers at that stage, right? Or showrunners. The right. term was so they not would used marry them. you with so they so they so writers. Herb married us with a guy named Jerry Davis, who had lots of experience producing shows. Jerry had produced The Odd Couple. He produced That Girl. He produced Bewitched. He produced. Uh, Half dozen. He was he was as experienced as anybody in the in the sitcom world, and we met Jerry, and he liked us. And then Jerry got hired as the co-producer, the, one of the two producers of the Nancy Walker show for Norman Lear. The other one being Arnie Rosen, who I mentioned <laughs> before. Uh, and Jerry brought us into the Nancy Walker show. That and all this, and they said to us the first day we were there. Uh, okay, who are your agents? And we said, we don't have agents. And they said, well, you better get agents. So all of a sudden, we went from not having anybody want us in the business to every agent in town wanted to hire us. Right. And Dennis and I had an incredible week that I'm still recovering from. I know. You you eat really well, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Where where we we went to, I think, about 10 agencies. The 10 top agencies in town all... We went to meetings with all of them, and they were, it was fascinating. I never learned so much about television as I did in that week um, because every agent did their dog and pony show for us, and they were and we signed with Robinson Weintraub, which at that time was the sitcom factory. Everybody on every sitcom was Robinson Weintraub. Right. We went to, I'll tell you a quick story. We went to one agency, and the guy sat us down. Um, he, was, he was Harlan agent, Harlan Ellison's agent. I was a friend of Harlan's, and he had told me, don't sign with an agent until I, you know, t- check check it out. And I called him and said, we're thinking of this agent. He said, no, no, go see my guy. So we went to see his guy. He sets us down and he says, this is the opening line. Now, remember, remember, flashback to the moment when you hadn't sold anything. Okay. <laughs> he says, now, I'm not good at getting you work. <laughs> and Dennis and I looked at is each other like... good at getting you like, laid? Like, I mean, <laughs> then what? <laughs> here's, the, here's the pitch. Okay, I'll be, I'll be the agent for a second. All right. I'm not good at getting you work, 
but no one will get you more money. I will kill for you. I will get every nickel. I will leave them bleeding. They will be crying for mercy. When they get through negotiating me, they will be begging. They will be saying, they'll, they'll, you, you, then you'll say to them, oh, talk to my agent. They'll go, no, no, we can't talk to your agent. He'll kill us again. Please, here's all the money. And he just went on about how he was the greatest negotiator in all of show business. And I don't know that he wasn't, but when you're starting out, who wants an agent who's going to, going to kill them and make them beg for mercy? And you could just imagine going in and, they, and then they would say, they'd make the deal and they'd say, okay, this better be damn good. This, you guys, this, 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 this script had better cure cancer. I mean, so we didn't sign with him, but we signed with Robinson Weintraub, which was a, which represented, you know, half the sitcom writers. Right. Yeah. And the next thing we knew we were writing a love boat. We wrote a love boat. We wrote lo- a love boat um, script before. Uh, love boat was was the final in its final version. Uh, they had done a TV movie uh, with Don Adams was in it and Florence Henderson, people like that, and it had a different. I think I think Dick Van Patten was the captain or somebody. Different crew. Okay, know, and they. Hadn't bought the show. We, they, we went over to ABC. We, we, we screened, they screened the pilot for us. And they said, we're changing the show around. None of these people are going to be on the boat. We're, we're doing another pilot. And at that point, now, this is something I'm the only, I seem to be the only person in the world who knows this. Or I guess Dennis remembers it. They said, we're going to write, the, this show is going to go on at 10 o'clock or maybe even 11 o'clock on Saturday night. And it's going to be more adult and we're going to film some really adult scenes, including nudity. So we're going to release these as features overseas. The Love Boat. The Love Boat was uh-huh. going to was going to be R rated, uh-huh. and they were they, they were going to see how far they could push it. Now this is years before, you know, N, uh, NYPD Blue right. or, or mm-hmm. anything like that. You know, Dennis Franz's ass had not been seen, <laughs> and. They wanted us to come up with a script that was really adult and really sexy and, and, and controversial. And they said, forget about everything that you've ever seen on sitcoms before. We want passion and lust and we want naked women and maybe some naked men. And, and you, there will be two, there'll be two versions of the script. There'll be the one we run in America and there'll be the one for overseas. Because at that point, it was not going to be a weekly series. It was going to be a series of like four specials a year. Okay. By the time we finished our script, that was all gone. And it was now a nine o'clock show with family values. And, and, and our, the, the script we wrote didn't make it into the second Love Boat pilot. It didn't make it into the third Love Boat pilot. By the time it got made, it had no, it, no resemblance to what we did. And by that point, we were already on doing Cotter. Right, uh, and we did the Nancy Walker show. We did the McLean. We did. I tell it this way: we did the Nancy Walker show. We got fired after about six weeks, and, and Nancy got fired after about twelve. And then we did the McLean Stevenson show. We got fired after about four weeks, and McLean got fired after about nine. And then we got hired on Cotter. That wasn't going anywhere, and we did Cotter for a year. And then we, as friends, decided to go our separate ways. And Dennis and I are still friends. And you should have him on your podcast. Yeah, Dennis uh, became a therapist and a mystery novelist. Yes, he's, yeah. he. You know, it's it's. Um, you know, you hear about all these teams that break up, and everybody wants to kill each. You know, right. far apart. Dennis and I stayed good friends. We 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 have lunch once a year or so, and 
catch up on things, and he's a, a very bright guy. We just, at one point, decided we wanted different things for our careers, and I kind of felt at that moment, if I could go as a solo, I was just more comfortable as a solo. Although I te- did team up with other writers after Dennis for certain projects. Okay, that's part one. Part two coming up next week is equally interesting. Mark is going to be talking about an insane, an absolutely insane variety show that he worked on called Pink Lady and Jeff. And we're going to get into cartoons and animation and specifically the voice actors who do the cartoons since Mark directs the Garfield series and a number of others. He's going to give you a lot of great tips on how to break into that world, the do's and don'ts, etc. That is next week. Again, thank you so much for being here. Also, thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to John Wolford, Howard Hoffman, and Randy Thomas. If you have any questions, concerns, you want to get in touch with me for any reason, you may do so. You can just email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, and you can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood.